Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to No Limits, a Mitch Rap Podcast. So how you doing this week, Mike? Man, I don't know. I did something to my back playing golf uh, just yesterday. That darn nine iron. Ooh. Yeah, I took a, took a nine iron on a par three. It was about 130, 135. Felt something go. I just tweaked it right as I was following through on the shot. But uh, I, I stuck the green. I landed on the green. Oh, there you go. Did you put it out? So I could barely walk, man. I was hunched <laughs> over. These guys I was playing with were like, what the hell is going on? It's like, <laughs> I'm hitting this birdie. I'm hitting this birdie. I took one hand. I could barely move. I missed the birdie putt, but I parted. And, uh, nice. Yeah, that was my last hole for the day. I took off after that. Well, you better get ready before uh, we see each other and play golf, so... I know, I know. That's my goal. I just want to get ready for a little golf meetup with the boys. So I'm taking it easy until then. All right, good, good. Yeah. Yes. I'm... You're only a year older than me, but sometimes, you know, <laughs> you're an old soul, I've... Martini. I feel like as long as we've known each other, I've I've been the old man. <laughs> just... <laughs> you have. It's kind of funny. I really sometimes... I, I go to bed early. I never went out with you guys, or if I did go out with you guys, I left the bar at like 10 p.m. <laughs> You're the famously the Irish goodbye to it guy too. You know, you just peace out <laughs> super early, not even Dallas. Oh, Guilty man. as charged. Guilty anyway. as charged. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, on a different note, we have to thank our patrons who we want to take a moment just to thank them. Uh, they're what makes this podcast possible. You too can become a patron uh, of the show, just like Dennis T, Sherry F, Peggy G. Catherine C, Ray M, and Jeff P. By clicking that orange button, support us on Patreon at our website, MitchRapPod.com. Awesome. Well, Chris, how about you uh, keep going and tell us what content we're covering today? I'm kind of excited about this new initiative we're kicking off. Yes, yeah, so we, uh, our last episode, we interviewed Kyle Mills, and we enjoyed talking to him and you know, doing a deep dive into him as an author that we wanted to, you know, Keep it going. And so we're actually going to try to be bringing to you guys more interviews with authors, independent authors, authors that we're currently reading alongside the Mitrap series. Um, and today we're excited to give you our interview with an author called um, Ward Larson. And uh, we're going to be going over Assassin's Strike. So, Martini, do you want to give us a, just a quick overview of, of, that, of that book? Sure. This is new book, just out, probably when you're hearing this, about a week or so ago. It's the seventh in the David Slayton series, and I will give you a short overview from Ward's website. Slayton is tasked with a daring rescue and uncovers a plot that will tear the Middle East apart. In a Syrian palace, the presidents of Russia and Iran undertake a clandestine meeting. No staff or advisors are permitted in the room. No records are kept. By necessity, however, there are two witnesses, the interpreters. The Russian, Ludmila Kravchuk, returns to her hotel room, burdened by what she has heard. When her, when her Iranian counterpart is murdered before her eyes, Kravchuk fears she is next and goes into hiding in Syria. The CIA gets word of the defection. Desperate to uncover the purpose of the meeting, they task their newest off-the-book operator, legendary assassin David Slayton, to undertake a daring rescue. Deep inside Syria's war-torn borders, 
What Slayton finds is a plot that will tear the Middle East apart, and one that only he can stop. I just want to thank Ward for sending me an advanced reader's copy of this book. It was incredible. I immediately recommended it to Chris and to any readers out there. Pick up your copy right away. You'll be glad you did. Talking to him was so awesome today after reading Assassin's Strike. I went back and picked up all the other uh, David Slayton books in the series, and I look forward to ripping through them in the next couple of months. Yeah, Martini loved it so much that uh, he's going to be giving me that, and he actually sent me a copy of The Perfect Assassin, which I really enjoyed. So, yeah, check out Ward Larson. Um, And here's our interview with him. We hope you enjoy it. So today we're excited to welcome a USA Today bestselling author and former U.S. Air Force pilot, Ward Larson. Ward is the author of 12 thriller novels, including his recently published Assassin's Strike, the seventh installment in the Assassin series. So Ward, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. And I got to say, congratulations on the release of Assassin's Strike, the seventh in the David Slayton series. Uh, This book was unbelievable. Easily one of my favorite books of the year. So can you tell us, where did the idea come from to set the bulk of the action in Syria? Well, you know, I, it's, it's tough as a writer coming up with ideas for plots that haven't been done before. It really is. That's probably the hardest thing for me is coming up with stuff that isn't, you know, it hasn't already been done. Uh, Syria, of course, is a hot spot. I generally try to keep up with current events. And uh, that's where I get most of my ideas, which, you know, Syria, of course, has been a hot spot for, you know, 10 years now. And uh, I guess the, the whole original concept of this would involve the interpreter at the beginning, where, you know, and that, that probably goes back to uh, when our president, you know, Trump and uh, Putin met in Helsinki a couple of years ago, and nobody was in the room but the interpreters. And just, you know, get you thinking, you know, what, what do they know? <laughs> what do they not want to know that they heard? And it just was kind of the seed of an idea. Yeah, I was really taken aback right from the opening scene, just pondering how much access interpreters have and how necessary they are to international relations. And I, I started thinking about other jobs that might be kind of right on the outskirts of these big, important meetings and might eavesdrop and hear something here and there. And placing an interpreter at the center of that was, uh, was really brilliant, really genius idea. Yeah, well, they're, they're kind of an innocent, you know, they're sort of Hitchcock's, you know, innocent man who gets in thrust to an, you know, an impossible situation. And that's uh, kind of where this interpreter found herself. Yeah, I'd imagine, you know, Secret Service or bodyguards also hear a lot, but at least they're they're sworn. And part of their training is being sworn to secrecy where an interpreter, I wonder if in the course of their training, they have similar agreements uh, that they have to sign off on or agree to stay mum. Well, I think when you get to that level, they do. They're pretty well briefed and they're pretty well vetted. But even so, they're, they're people down at heart, you know, and they, they hear things that, uh, that must take them aback now and again. And uh, it's, it's got to be a, a difficult situation for them. So another way you keep up with modern times in the book is through the use of technology. I was really excited to see drones play a prominent role and figure very heavily in the plot and the pacing of the action. Maybe not even how a typical reader would imagine. The things you do with drone technology in this book are just (laughs) phenomenal and out of the blue. And so can you tell us what influenced you to 
put drones front and center in your storyline? Well, my background in as I'm a pilot, but uh, you know, I, I keep up with aviation pretty well. And uh, over the years, it's it's really morphed a lot. And drones are doing more and more, and I'm using more and more of them in my books for that reason. But that's really where the world is going. You know, by using a drone, you can put it into a, a dangerous area and not have to worry about the crew, not have to worry about the sensitive, you know, things on board as much as you would with a with a fighter or an Intel airplane. So, uh, you know, that's just where warfare is going. So I try to adapt my, my stories to include that. And yeah, that this specific instance, I'm sure you're probably referring to in the book is just something I made up, but I, you know, I don't know of any technical reason why you couldn't do that. And uh, I'm not gonna do any spoilers here, but uh, it's, it's, you know, I do that a lot in my books or, or at least once or twice a book. I try to come up with something that, you know, it's not anything top secret. It's just something I kind of made up in my mind, but it's, it's realistic. I think it could actually happen. And uh, maybe it's out there and it's just not released for public information, but uh, you know, it's just an option I came up with. That was very exciting. I, I guess based on, uh, to follow up that question, how much research did you need to do to, you know, in play some of these techniques? You mentioned that you've, you're, you know, I, we know you're a pilot. Have you flown a drone or do you, obviously you know the inner workings of it? I have not flown a drone, but I still work for an airline, although I'm going to take some time off here soon to write full time. But I, I have access to people who have done just about everything. I've, I talk to drone pilots, you know, guys who have had taken tours uh, flying drones. So I have access to pretty much anything in aviation I need just from the people I work with day in, day out. So um, a lot of it's firsthand knowledge how it operates. And then yeah, I do research on the internet, but just having been in that air force, in the air force and the military, I kind of have a good idea and good context where I can find these things out. Now I haven't read them, but I understand you have a series of other books that involve planes more heavily. I saw the cover of fly by wire. It looked exciting. Yeah. So you've, you've covered drones, you've covered airplanes. And I went back and read the perfect assassin, which very heavily involved at sea on a sailboat. Um, right. What's next then? You have all these transportation methods. Are you going? Is David Slayton going to space anytime soon? He's going to take over the Falcon 9? <laughs> I'm not sure about space, but you know, I like to get around the world. Actually, he's going to some very cold places on the one I'm working on right now. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, that whole military thrower thing, you get into land, sea, air, and I, I try and include them all. And I try to include some exotic locations, usually places where I want to go myself so I can do the research, <laughs> which I don't always do. I do my best on that. But, you know, I'm, I didn't go to Syria for this. I'll, I'll tell you that. Speaking of exotic locations, another prominent place in the book is Saudi Arabia. And I don't want to say too much, but you mentioned a famous building in the capital city. And I was shocked myself because I keep up with trends of architecture and the world's tallest buildings. Uh, yes. Really exciting to track the Jeddah Tower going up in Saudi Arabia in your story. What yeah. influenced you to, to go that route? Um, just something spectacular, which is, you know, usually what terrorists go for. And, uh, and it's what, you know, in the story, the reason they, that we're at that tower has to do with the Saudi rulers, which, you know, they like the spectacular as well. So, you know, it just, it makes for a good headline. I think makes for a good, good story. You know, I, because of that, that tower, it's, you know, the Jeddah Tower is becoming tallest in the world. You know, it's going to be one up by somebody in Malaysia, because that's just a constant battle, you know, who's got the tallest building. <laughs> but, 
And that's one thing you do have to be careful about as an author is dating your books by doing things like that. You know, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Taking a step back and looking at your series as a whole, where did you get the inspiration for the uh, Assassin series? I made him an Israeli assassin. And a lot of people have asked me if I designed that after Gabriel Alon, Daniel Silva's character. And uh, it's not the case. Um, I started writing The Perfect Assassin a long time ago. The first book I started writing in the late 90s. And it was not a full-time job. I kind of just did it on a whim. And it was finally published in 2005. But I had pretty much the first draft written by the time the first Gabriel Alon book come out. The character was based on um, somebody I had met. Um, there, at that point in time, there were quite a few books out that dealt with special operator types and assassins, that type of person. And I wanted to make mine a little different. And back in the 90s, when I was in the Air Force, I was instructing at uh, Tyndall Air Force Base and we had a guy come through our course who was actually working for a private company, but he got approval to come get checked out on the airplane I was flying. And he was Israeli. And uh, this guy was an Israeli test pilot. He'd flown in combat. He'd shot down MiGs. I mean, he had done everything. He was really a neat guy. And talking to him, and we, he gave a talk to our squadron one day, and his mindset really made an impression on me, how the Israelis think about the world. They're surrounded by enemies. The first war they lose is the last, and they really have a, a unique mindset. And that I kind of translated into this character because I thought it would really help build that. That's the kind of character I wanted to build. So that's why I made him Israeli. And speaking of our Israeli assassin and, and hero, David Slayton, he reminds me of a lot of other thriller characters in a way. And I couldn't help but notice, you know, his, uh, he has the strength or the brawn of this commando, kind of like the gray man in Mark Graney series, but he also has the analytical thinking and problem solving like our friend Mitch Rapp, willing to just kick butt and get to the bottom of a situation. And the way he and Irene Kennedy kind of think outside the box to, to get the job done. Again, way back then, I, I, I don't think Mitch Rapp had, had been around yet at that point when I first started writing, but I'm sure the later books I had read, you know, those characters. And Slayton has evolved over the years. You know, he used to be a real loner, and uh, he was kind of used by, by Mossad and tricked into doing some things he probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, He's definitely morphed, and I would say there's definitely, and you talk about Irene Kennedy, he has a controller with Mossad, uh, Anton Block, and who is a real gruff sort, and, uh, but who at one point had actually, he was the man who recruited Slayton into Mossad, but then they had a falling out. Uh, now Slayton lately has been kind of morphed over where he's working more for the CIA, and it's, it's a... He's not always enthusiastic about it, but he knows it's the right thing to do. And Slayton has also come to where he has a family now. He has a, a wife and a child who, you know, I don't put them at risk in every book, but they, he does, he is a family man. And so he has to kind of balance that between, between, uh, you know, the risks he's taking and the good he's doing. Yeah, and for any uh, new readers like myself uh, toward Larson's work, I read Assassin's Strike. It was incredible. I had to go back and it was great learning the backstory of this character and meeting Anton Block and seeing his background and then learning more about how uh, he was going to build a family and uh, really intriguing character for any new readers who pick up Assassin's Strike. I definitely urge you to go back and uh, start working through the series as well from the beginning like I did. 
I guess um, I'm also intrigued just, uh, you know, you're a pilot, also a writer, um, really wanted to know a little bit more about your approach to a new novel uh, and how you, you know, set out to, you know, are you, there? we listen to this other podcast where they talk about you're, you're either a plotter or a pantser. Um, and, you know, we talked to Kyle and he literally writes these, you know, almost a novella for his outline. So what, what, what do you, what sort of style do you take? I tried doing the outline once and it didn't work at all. I spent more time messing around with the outline. So I'm, I'm definitely a pantser. I kind of have the big generic idea of where it's going to go in the end. And then I just, you know, start from the beginning and, and it's, a, it's a path to get there. Um, I kind of look at my first draft as a 90,000 word outline. And then I just start rewriting at that point. But I'm definitely a pantser. I, I don't like the restrictions of an outline, but you know, different people work differently. And some just have to have that structure. And I, I really like working better without it. I think it gives me more leeway to, to react to things that come up during the course. Cause it takes a year to write a book and you have good ideas during that year and directions you decide you want to take. Sometimes it's current events drive, you know, things that happen in a book and you want to go places or not go places due to what's happening in the world. So uh, I definitely like to, to leave it open. Do you have like a file of situations that you want to, you know, put your characters in that for the next one, or, you know, you just, it comes to you, you know, throughout the course of writing one book, or do you just focus on one at a time? I, I keep a loose record. I have a little file folder. I keep of you know, ideas for upcoming books and, you know, I kind of go through them each time and decide which is the best one or if I can come up with something better, but I have to write it down because you know, you know, I just can't remember all this stuff. If I uh, try to, I'll lose the idea. So I write it all down and I usually, you know, each year I get about eight or 10 different concepts of, of where to take it. Um, you know what I thought was really a good one if you read it? Um, it's, like I say, it's very hard to come up with things that haven't been done. You know, you've got anthrax attacks and nuclear weapons and things like that. The one that I really enjoyed a lot was uh, Brad Thor's that came out last year. Not the most recent one, but last year oh, where yeah. he ended up in Russia and he crashed in an airplane. And it was basically, it was escape and evasion. It was Siri, you know, which is really a, a cool way to go, I thought. Nobody had quite done that. Uh, there was a book that came out many, many years ago done by Louis L'Amour called The Last of the Breed That's a, that was kind of the same thing where a guy was trapped behind inside Russia, actually, and he, he had to basically walk his way out. He was an Indian, and it was a really, really interesting book. But uh, And I think that's where Brad got the idea for that. But uh, it's, it's hard to come up with those things that haven't been done, those concepts. It's funny you brought up Backlash because when you were mentioning putting David Slayton into a colder environment seeing what happens i couldn't help but thinking back to that brad thor novel yeah last year it was fantastic but um i was going to ask you more about your experience as a pilot um can you tell us a little bit about um what your role was in the air force i mean thank you for your service of course but um what do you enjoy most about uh your days flying for the air force well, the flying is the best part. Um, you know, I flew A-10s. Uh, when you fly a, an airplane like that, a fighter, an attack airplane, you're really only up in the air maybe three or four times a week. And the rest of the time you're in briefing and training and ancillary stuff. And you're a flight commander doing performance reports and things like that. So I definitely miss the flying. But the farther up you get in the ranks, the less flying you do and you more of the other stuff you do. So I, I don't really regret getting out. But uh, I definitely missed the flying. Um, I, I had 
written about this uh, in another interview earlier, but you know, I was in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and it was it was kind of odd because at that point I'd been in the A-10 three years and the whole time we were training for basically the Cold War. We were trained to go to the Fulda Gap in Germany and fly low and bump up and strafe tanks and things like that. And then the Gulf War came around and the threat was not high threat. It was low threat. We owned the skies. We pretty much suppressed all the, the surface air missiles. So we were staying up high to stay out of the small arms fire, which is the only real threat and doing strafe in a 60 degree dive, which none of us had ever done before. And a 60 degree dive feels like you're pointed straight at the ground. <laughs> so it was you know, interesting how it all came to a, to, a, to a head in that war and how it, how it changed from the way we trained, but we adapted and then it worked. Do you have, um, I mean, if you, don't, if, if you don't have to share it, if you don't feel comfortable, do you have like a favorite memory of when you were flying? Uh, one thing, and again, I was just thinking about this to go into a, a book maybe, but I remember one day in the Gulf War out flying and I was flying over Kuwait. It was daytime and looked off in the distance and I saw what could only be described as the mushroom cloud. I was at 25,000 feet and this cloud was going higher than I was. It, it really was a mushroom cloud. And I, I didn't know if we had just, you know, there's a small island off of Kuwait called Filaka Island. And there were a bunch of Iraqis out there, troops, no equipment really, but just a lot of troops dug in. And what it was, was a fuel air explosive, one of the mother of all bombs that they launched. They roll it out of a C-130 and it gets above the ground, the fuel spreads out and then it ignites and it just creates a huge pressure wave. But the thing was, none of us knew that was coming and none of us had ever seen one before. And it was, it was a real eye opener to, to see that. Mm. And I think my other memory of that war was the, uh, when they lit off the oil fields, the big black cloud that just hung over the whole country. Huh. Wow. On a lighter note, do you have any uh, favorite geographic landmarks uh, to fly over? Things that just look beautiful from the sky? Um, lately, I've been flying a lot in the Caribbean and then flying over the Bahamas quite a bit. And the Bahamas are real pretty to fly over. The Bahamas are big. And I was just out there the other day and I, I saw the what looked like the boneyard of cruise ships. There must have been close to 20 cruise ships just parked uh, off Nassau and all anchored. So yeah, you see some neat things out flying around. It really kind of gives you a, a God's eye view of the world. Is it hard to uh, manage your writing and your flying? Yeah, yeah, it has been. Again, I got to take some time off because of this COVID thing. Uh, they're offering a lot of programs for uh, taking, you know, temporary time off. So for the next couple of years, I'm going to just write full time. So I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, it is a little tough to do both. Although the, the airline, you know, I fly about three days a week uh, with the airline and uh, plus on overnights, I can get some work done in the hotel room. So it's, it's manageable. The, the jobs go well together, but still it's, it's full time. Nice. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks for coming on the show and talking to us about uh, the new release of Assassin's Strike. We'd like to wrap up by asking, uh, what are you currently reading or consuming in media? Any books, any TV shows that uh, currently have your attention? Uh, TV shows, I'm watching Bosch right now. Michael Connelly, the adaption nice. of Michael Connelly's books, which I think is a very good adaptation. You know, the way he's kind of worked his books seamlessly from one season to the next, he's kind of weaved them all in. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very well done. And 
Right now, I'm just about to uh, start Daniel Silva's next book, and uh, I'm reading another book about the uh, Mossad. I can't think of the name of it. It's an odd name, but it's about the uh, history of assassins in the Mossad, and I'm learning a lot from that. And I never knew how many people Mossad has actually done away with it. It's been in the thousands. But it's it's oh, an wow. interesting book, nonfiction. I, l- I looked that up. Um, where both me and Mike are pretty interested in you know, the history of the Mossad, so... I'll email that to you later. Big nonfiction oh, readers, even though we're doing the Mitch Rap podcast, uh, pretty big nonfiction readers too. Yeah. Well, Mitch Rapp, they only put out one, one book a year, right? By the way, yeah. I gotta, yeah, on, on Mitch Rap, um, I thought Kyle, Kyle Mills has done a standout job of keeping that series true to the originals. And uh, that's not an easy thing to do. So my hat's off to him. I think he really does a good job with it. Yeah, we were, you, do you, we were glad to hear he got the three book contract and I, we, Certainly hope uh, even more beyond that coming from Kyle. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, Vince Flynn or Mitch Rab novel? Um, no, I, I haven't read every one. I've probably read all but two or three. But uh, and I think maybe the, maybe the beginning. I, 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 the very or American Assassin was good. Right. Do the prequel. Yeah, that's a classic. So, how can listeners uh, keep up with you? Do you are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on social media. Wardlarson.com is my uh, is my website, and uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, yeah, by all means, get in touch with me. I'm happy to answer questions or make recommendations. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, we highly recommend uh, all of our listeners to to check out uh, these books. We enjoyed reading Assassin Strike. So, yeah, Assassin Strike just out for about two weeks now from when this podcast is released and we definitely urge you to go to wardlarson.com and uh, pick up your copy. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it, Ward. All right, guys. Great talking to you. Nice to meet you. Have a good day. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Ward. We hope to be bringing you more of those. But in our next episode, we're going to be doing continuing our Road to Total Power series as we get ready for the release on September 15th. Yeah, so look for that in your feed. While you're at it, please subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at mitrappod.com or using our Twitter handle at mitrappod or on Instagram using the same. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Well, Chris. I guess you could say my review of Assassin's Strike can best be summed up in the form of a limerick. You are quite the poet, Martini. I wrote a limerick uh, as well for this one in my five-star Goodreads review. So uh, tell me what you think. Where have you been all my life, David Slayton? For more of your adventures, I'm now waiting. Assassin's Strike, a stunning delight. To my Amazon cart, his books will go straight in. With drones and chemical agents aplenty, this is one of the best books of 2020. The action never ceased. Ward created a masterpiece. To his books, I will turn quite frequently. Well, how about you um, read the one for The Perfect Assassin? Couldn't help myself writing another limerick. All right. So you you recently sent me the copy of this, and I'm, I'm working my way through it. So... Uh... I like, I like what you've done here, and I'll go ahead and read it for you. David Slayton, a sailboat, and a doctor. He was so strong that it shocked her. 
nuclear weapons are lost, locating them at a cost, our heroes run from a concocter. A fantastic introduction to the massage agent we can trust in, a kitten to keep up with, an assassin not to fuck with. Amazing Ward's work has thus been. Boom. Boom, baby. By the way, nobody knows that my name, that you call me, that everyone calls me Martini. Maybe we should say that. Oh, did I say Martini? Oh, shit. Like three times. <laughs> That's honestly I'm surprised this, this, is the, this is the first episode that uh, I made that slip up. <laughs> yeah. uh, do we have to point it out or no? No, I'll just go back to calling you Mike. They're going to be like, who the fuck is Martini? People are going to be like, what? Oh, I guess people on Facebook will know, though. Facebook people on Facebook will know the year Mike Martini, right? So. 